Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Come to this place where we ask God to answer that prayer. Lord, teach us to love your word. Reveal yourself to us. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There are Bibles available like this one back on the rack near where you entered. And if you're using one of those, this text is on page 955, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's join our hearts in prayer again as we're gathered as God's people. Lord, we do unite our hearts in prayer. We're gathered, Lord, as your people. You've called us out of the world. You've joined us to Jesus Christ. And we have this privilege to gather, not just on Sunday morning, but in many different ways throughout the week. But Lord, there's, there's something unique about us gathering together as your people. There's, there's safety in that. Uh, there's the warmth of fellowship. There's the eagerness to hear from you. We're called out of the world. Uh, we're, we're called to live among the world. You've, you've not taken us out of the world, Lord. We live in a world uh, where we sense the joys and the fears and the frustrations and the uncertainty of, of our neighbors, and we feel them ourselves. And Lord, I, I do want to ask for your help for us today as we have uh, come to the end of a week that has been um, historic in our country, unusual, or there are many people very excited and optimistic about the results of our election. And there are others who are very worried and concerned and wonder what the future will hold. And Lord, you've called us to live with our foot, as it were, in two cities, the city of God and the city of man. We're still here in this place, and you've called us to, be, to, to love our world and to love our neighbors, to pray for our leaders. So God, we pray that you'd help us to do that. And Lord, we pray today for our sitting president, President Obama. And Lord, we pray that you'd help him to finish his term well. And we pray that you'd be with his family as they transition from, uh, from being in political life to a new life. And Lord, we pray for President-elect Trump. Lord, we pray that you would set uh, near him wise counselors. Lord, we pray that he would seek righteousness and mercy, peace, and justice and compassion. And Lord, we pray we, he would look to you as his king. We look to you as our king today. And we pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your word. We're grateful that your word is truth. And Holy Spirit, we're grateful for your ministry, how you, you open uh, not just our eyes and our minds, but our hearts to embrace the truth of the gospel. We pray that you do that again today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> 
Well, we're continuing through the book of Corinthians in the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to again talk on the topic of marriage today. And someone has compared marriage to a besieged city. Half the people are trying to get in, and the other half are trying to get out. Now, we sort of smirk at that because we know the irony of it on the one hand, and we know that all too often that can be the truth. Either we've sensed that in our own lives or we walk with those who sense it. And in these next couple of weeks, we're going to continue to look at marriage today and we're going to look at singleness, the, the, those perhaps who are on the outside who want to get in. And so next week, the topic is going to be very much about singleness, and I encourage all of us who are married to be very dialed in for that message because it's going to be a message of understanding singleness from God's perspective and also understanding the goodness of that and how we who are married can minister to those who are single. But today we're going to again talk on the topic of marriage, and in particular, look at God's Word as it addresses marriages that can be very difficult. One of the real joys I have as a pastor is, is performing the wedding ceremony, uh, officiating weddings for a, an engaged couple. I enjoy that immensely. And whenever I agree to do that, I always, it's always a stipulation that we have premarital counseling, and I enjoy doing that. But there's always that counseling session, probably session number two, if not session number one, uh, that I call the burst your bubble session where this often young couple is sitting in my office, and I really don't need more than one chair because they're practically sitting on top of one another. <laughs> they're just so in love, and they're just so darn cute. And, and at some point, I have to say something like this to them. It's like, you guys are so in love, and that's great, and, and I love seeing that, and I, I, hope, you know, I hope there's always romance in your marriage, and you should always strive for that, but there will be times when those warm feelings are not there. And pretty much everything we're going to do now in premarital counseling from here on out is address those, toward those times when the warm feelings are no longer there. And... If you've been married for any amount of time, let's say more than a week, <laughs> you experience difficulty in your marriage and challenge in your marriage. And the reality is that there are some marriages who experience that on more of an ongoing basis. There are marriages that are simply more difficult than others. And what I would like us to do is look at God's Word with an eye toward having great hope and great confidence in the gospel for those marriages that may be more difficult than the average marriage. And for all of our marriages, when we go through tough times, and we go, when we go through, through dry spells with one another, that this would be a word of hope to all of us. And so let me again remind you of why hearing this word is important. It's important for, for three reasons. I mentioned these last week, but I just want to remind us again today. First of all, it's important because we live uh, in a culture that is, that is often confused about topics like marriage and singleness and human sexuality. Uh, both those who, who live have come to faith 
uh, from outside the world and, and those from within. And so too often the church has reflected our world in these areas. And so we need to hear God's word this morning. And we need to hear God's word because we need to respond with, with grace and truth to a world that is confused about marriage and about singleness and about human sexuality. And then thirdly, we need to hear this word because we want to see men and women come to faith in Jesus from, from all kinds of marriage situations and, and previous marriage situations and single situations. And the church needs to be a place where, where people can, can come and experience God's grace before they get all of those particularities of their life figured out or cleaned up. We all come to Jesus, as the old hymn says, just as we are, just as I am. And when people come, in, come to faith, and you have experienced this, when you come to faith in Jesus, it's then that Jesus, after trusting Him for salvation, begins to clean up these areas in our lives. And so let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to look in particular at verses, uh, verses 8 through 16. But again, take a look at the big picture of the, of the chapter. Notice that in, first of all, in the section we're going to look at, 8 through uh, 16, that uh, Paul addresses three groups. You see it in verse 8 and verse 10 and verse 12. To the unmarried and widows, verse 8. Verse 10, to the married. Verse 12, to the rest. And we're going to see he actually has a very specific group in mind there. And remember again that this chapter has sort of a centering point. You think about throwing a pebble into a pond, the pebble makes a splash in the center, and then what happens? Well, those, those rings ripple out, those waves ripple out from there. And, and the centering splash of this passage is found in verses 17 uh, through 24, and the, and the ripples of truth go out from there. And if you look at 17 through 24 and just skim down it, you're going to see the word called several times. Paul is emphasizing God's call on a believer's life. Uh, that, that believers uh, were called to faith through the gospel. In chapter 1, Paul talked about being called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. And he talked about God's people being called saints, being called holy ones, those who are to re represent him in their world. Well, that's the... That's the larger context. Notice uh, that that's the central truth. The, the immediate context of the chapter we're going to look at uh, is verse 7 of chapter 7. Look at verse 7 of chapter 7. Paul writes, this is the Apostle Paul, I wish that all were as I myself am, namely single and having the gift of celibacy for the reason of particular service. I wish that all were as I myself am, but... Each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. This is Paul's statement that he personally believes that the single celibate lifestyle is preferable for disciples of Jesus. He says this is actually his spiritual gift, or one of his spiritual gifts at least. Yet he recognizes that not all believers are gifted in the same way. In, in the same way. Uh, some have the gift of celibacy, like the Apostle Paul. Others have been given the gift of a spouse. 
And so understand two sort of overarching realities as we get into this passage. One is that marriage is a good thing. Even the guy who says, I don't feel the need to be married and I think everybody should be single, he still says it is a good thing. It is the gift. Yes, it's not the ultimate thing, and we've been emphasizing that, but it is a good thing, a good gift from God. And then second, married folks, understand that your spouse is a particular gift to you from God. Your spouse is a gift to you from God. And Paul applies this this truth of God's good gift of marriage in this passage, I believe, not to the Hallmark card marriages that are out there, but to the hard marriages, the difficult marriages, the marriages that are sitting in a counseling office. And so our aim this morning is to So look at this passage again with that big overarching theme of God's goodness for all marriages, in particular when our marriages are in a tough spot. And so here's the big idea, the main theme today, and that is that God's good plan for marriages includes difficult marriages. It includes what you might call at-risk marriages, and it includes all of our marriages when we go through those tough times. That's God's, we're going to look at God's good plan marriage and four aspects or four truths about God's, the goodness of marriages. So let's start with the first one found in verses 8 and 9. And it falls under this theme. The protection of marriage is for our good. The protection of marriage is for our good. Paul's first instruction in this section that we're going to apply to marriage is actually not to to married people, or at least people who are not currently married. Look at verses 8 and 9. He writes, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul is speaking here, it says, to the, the unmarried and to widows. Now, it's, pro, I'm, it's very possible um, that he may be speaking here particularly to people who, all people who once were married, but now through their circumstances are not. That term unmarried there um, could be a term for uh, widowers. There wasn't really a term commonly used for widowers, so it, it might be that Paul was saying to the, the widowers, or the widows, that term could also mean uh, not just unmarried, but sort of demarried. In other words, you were married at one point, but through, through some kind of circumstances, whether that was death or whether that was divorce, you are no longer married. And I tend to think that that is specifically who Paul is talking to, not the least of which because of the kind of instruction he gives here. And if so, I also think that this is probably the status that Paul was in. And we don't read about Paul ever having a wife. But we do read about Paul's former life in Judaism, that he was rising through the ranks as a teacher of the law and as a Pharisee. And in Jewish culture and Jewish understanding, especially among the leadership and the teachers of the law, uh, it would have been a sin for him not to be married. Literally, they would have understood it that way. And so Paul, being the guy who, who, who 
you know, crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's as far as his religion went. You can read about that in Philippians chapter 3, his pedigree, his, his CV of his accomplishments in Judaism. That being the case, I think it is most likely that Paul was married, and the fact that he's married now seems to indicate that he, that, 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 that marriage had dissolved at some point, probably with him coming to faith in Christ. And in verse 7, Paul affirms the gift of celibacy. But here he's addressing singles who don't have that gift of celibacy. And he's saying some of you should remain single. And I, Paul says, I've said several times why I think that's a good thing. But others actually should pursue marriage because their own desires are not within their ability to control them. Now, next week, we're going to address that more specifically, those realities more specifically as they address single adults. But today, I want to focus on, again, on marriage with this particular emphasis toward challenging marriages. And so, married person, I think what we need to hear is that our marriages are a gift from God for our protection. Paul instructs these singles, you should get married if you are not able to control your physical desires for your own protection. A wife or a husband would be there for your protection, a gift for your good. And for those of us who do have a spouse, we need to remember that they are our gift for our protection from sin. This is certainly not the only purpose of marriage, nor is it even the highest purpose for marriage. If you only had 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you probably would not come up with a very high view of marriage, biblically speaking. But remember, Paul is speaking in the broader context of what God says about marriage. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, where, where God creates people, male and female, and then he gives them the gift of marriage. In uh, Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul writes about marriage being a picture of Christ and the church. And Paul's instructions here, though, are incredibly realistic. Again, he says, if you don't possess self-control, though you've sought div divine grace in this area, and the prayerful support of your brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet your physical urges are, are at inferno level, and they're staying there, then marriage and your spouse are good gifts for your protection. And so to the married person who wishes or sometimes might wish that they were no longer married, consider the danger that you would be putting yourself in if you were not married. Your spouse is a gift from God for your protection. Without him or her, you might find yourself entangled in all kinds of sin and temptation that you don't face because God has given you such a good, such a choice gift. You might even be in, in danger of, of, shipwrecking, of shipwrecking your own faith. Now, this is not God's final word on the goodness of marriage, but it is his word about the goodness of marriage. He has given us a spouse to protect us. Husband and wife, He has given you to one another for your sanctification, for your, for your growth in holiness. And so when our marriages go through those difficult seasons, 
can be hard to see the goodness in our marriages. Well, here, friends, we have a starting point. This is just a starting point, but it's a good starting point. God has given you a spouse for your sanctification, for your holiness, not just in the area of sexual morality, but in order that He might, might grow you in grace in every area. My goodness. You know, before I was married, I knew I wasn't perfect, but I thought I was a pretty good guy. And then God gave me a wife. And I discovered just how downright selfish I am. You know what? That is God's grace in my life. And it is His grace in your life if you have been given the gift of a spouse. So the goodness of marriage and its protecting us. Secondly, the permanence of marriage is for our good. The permanence of marriage is for our, for our good. Now Paul begins in verse 10 to speak directly to married people. Look at verses 10 and 11. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Notice that what we have here is a, a charge from the apostle, an authoritative command that he is giving to God's people and that God through his spirit is giving us this morning. Very straightforward. Do not separate. Do not divorce. And those two terms are pretty much interchangeable here. I know we use separation in more of a legal uh, aspect or a very specific way in our culture. And there, there may be uh, times when even a, a legal separation of husband and wife is a good thing toward their uh, reuniting and being reconciled. But Paul's not speaking about that here. He's, he's speaking about a permanent separation. He's talking about divorce here. And notice how he applies what he says here, both equally to husband and wife, both equally to men and women. Again, this is Paul, the radical first century feminist. Men and women are on equal ground in marriage. He says this, this command is from the Lord Jesus. He's actually quoting something that Jesus said and that, that would have been known to him and other believers. We read about it in Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 3. The Pharisees, it said, came to Jesus, and they were testing him, asking, is it lawful to, to divorce one's wife? Remember, they're trying to trick him, but they're asking him a question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered them, have you not read, notice he goes to Genesis chapter 2 here in the beginning, have you not read that he created them from the beginning and made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. And then Jesus says this, which we say at weddings. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus grounds the permanence of marriage here in the very establishment of marriage in the beginning. It's why we call marriage a creation ordinance. It's something God ordained from the very beginning of time. 
Genesis 2, verse 24. God creates humanity in his image, male and female. Because he has created them male and female, there is the possibility and the, and the joy of marriage. And it says in Genesis chapter 2 that God joined them together. This is God's math, right? One plus one equals one. One plus one equals one that is greater. The one of the man and the one of the woman creates a, a team, a husband and wife unit that is greater than what they were separately. See, something happens at a Christian wedding. It isn't just a legal agreement. It isn't just a sentimental sort of wish or ceremony. But God Almighty is actually joining a man and a woman together as they covenant with one another to be husband and wife. And the implications of that are far greater than our optimistic feelings on our wedding day or the legalities of a wedding license. Notice God is in the business of creating. And with marriage, God is creating again. He's creating a, a one flesh union, a holy marriage, a reflection of the mysterious union of his son and his bride, the church. And Paul reiter reiterates Jesus' words here and says, what God has united them, human beings may not mess with that. Friends, we need to hear this word today. I, I know there are exceptions to the command here not to divorce, and we're going to get to one of those in just a few moments. But I think we need to, to just stop and listen to what the Spirit is saying in this particular word. And here I'm not speaking to uh, divorced people to lay a guilt trip on you or, or anyone who has, through their family, experienced the, the pain and the hurt of divorce. There is much grace. There is much healing available for God's people. But I'm speaking now to married brothers and sisters like myself who need to be reminded in the midst of a culture that so devalues biblical marriage, we need to hear about the sacred nature of our vows, the vows that we made to our spouse and the vows that we made to God and the vows that God will give us the grace to follow through on. I know sometimes we hear an argument for divorce that sounds something like this. You know, since we don't feel love for one another anymore and haven't for a long time, for us to continue to be husband and wife would be to live a lie. And I want to tell you that reasoning is a lie. Because to live with your husband and wife and continue to be married when you don't necessarily feel all those feelings anymore is to actually very much live the truth. It's to live the truth of the vow that you made before God. It's to live the truth of God, what God has united and brought together. Let no human being pull asunder. Yes, that's not the best for our marriage. We want to be working toward, toward our feelings, catching up with our commitments. But it is true to live with one another and to honor God in that. I heard once that Ruth Graham was asked if she had ever considered divorcing Billy. And her response was, divorce? Oh, no. 
Murder, yes. Many times. But divorce, no, he said. Now, I'm, not, I'm not about to weigh those two against one another right now. Just, just making a point here. In other words, they had entered marriage not considering divorce to be an option. And that is the way we ought to, in faith, enter our marriages and be committed throughout our marriages. Husbands and wives, do, does your spouse know that you are committed to, to not just to them, but to what God created through the two of you? Are you created, are you committed to your marriage till death do us part? Have you said so recently? Have you said so in the midst of an argument to reassure them? Have you said so in the midst of a dry season in your marriage? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor uh, during World War II who was eventually executed in a Nazi prison camp, was asked while he was in prison to perform the wedding ceremony. He was engaged himself and was never able to marry, but a friend asked him if he would do the wedding uh, for him, for his friend and, and the friend's fiance, and he was not able because he was in prison. And, and though he was in prison, yet he wrote out the, the entire wedding ceremony and the entire wedding uh, sermon. And at the end of the sermon, he said this and wrote this to his, his dear friends. He said, at this point, in, as you are being joined together, something's going to change. It, will, it is not your love that sustains the marriage. But from now on, from this point forward, it is the marriage that sustains your love. It's not going to be your love alone that will sustain this marriage, dear ones, but it will be your marriage, what God has done in uniting you that will sustain your love. God's plan for marriage is permanence. And we see that in the instruction here uh, for a husband and wife who, who do, in fact, divorce. Notice how realistic the Bible is. It does speak to situations like that, that recognizes that there is human weakness and human sin. And yet God's command is they must remain unmarried or be reconciled. Why? Well, because God views them as being married. Man cannot pull asunder what God has joined together. And yet, there is hope. Notice that beautiful word reconciliation in the passage. Is there a more hopeful word? And it, it represents God's heart and the permanence that He calls us to in marriage. Thirdly, perseverance in marriage is for our good. Perseverance in marriage is for our good. Uh, verse 12, don't be thrown by this language of Paul that says, I say this not now, but not the Lord. All he's saying there is that I, what I just said, I have a direct quote from Jesus. What I'm saying now, I don't have a direct quote from Jesus. Of course, now that Paul, the apostle, has said it, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it's in our Bible, Basically, Jesus has said it <laughs> because Jesus has said all of this and it's all authoritative. 
whether Paul wrote it, whether Jesus wrote it, Moses, it is all God's Word. And so this, these truths beginning in verse 12 are every bit as binding as the rest of what we're looking at this morning. Look at verses 12 through 14. To the rest I say, not I but the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she should not divorce, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Paul is addressing here what we might call a mixed marriage, that is, mixed between a believer and an unbeliever. The Bible doesn't talk about any other kind of mixed marriages, only believer, unbeliever in that sort of a category. We know that God's plan is for a believer to marry a believer. It's even reflected a little bit later in this text, in, verse, uh, in this chapter, in verse 39, when Paul is instructing widows that if they do marry, they need to make sure they marry in the Lord. Paul talks elsewhere about not being unequally yoked, a believer with an unbeliever. So we know that God's plan is for a Christian to marry a Christian. So that, he's not talking about a Christian that has just married an un, and someone who's not. He's talking about people who, someone who came to faith as a married person and their spouse did not. And so now you have a marriage where there's one believer and there's an unbeliever. And the Corinthians had assumed perhaps that to, in order to avoid the, the, the impurity and the unholiness of living in a, in a one flesh unity with an unbeliever, it would probably be better for the believer to divorce the unbelieving spouse. Not to mention what being with them would mean in terms of, of having children who are, who are unholy because of the union of a believer with an unbeliever. And besides that, they may have reason. Paul is so fired up about being single, well, maybe I should just give it a try. And so their tendency would probably have been to counsel a believing spouse to divorce their unbelieving spouse. And Paul says, whoa, hold on. Put on the brakes. There's some things you need to consider here in this particular situation. Namely, that the presence of Jesus in your home through the believing spouse makes your home a Christian home. It means that your home is holy. It is set apart for Jesus. If you're a, a, a Christian married to a non-Christian, uh, you have been set apart. You have been called into fellowship with Jesus. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a saint. You are a holy one. And, and that means that your household is considered holy. Notice that just one believing spouse here is the key to a Christian home. It's not doesn't have to be the stereotypical, uh, you know, a mom and a dad and 2.5 above average children. One believer in that home makes it a Christian home. And Paul is reminding us here that, that, that good is greater than evil and that God's grace is stronger than sin, that God is more powerful than Satan. Friends, that, that's the message of the cross. And so he says grace in that household is thick. 
Grace in that household is, is, is thick. We, we should be very encouraged by the fact that there is gospel witness in that home through the believing spouse. So much so that Paul calls the husband or the, the unbelieving wife holy, not meaning that they've been saved or that they've been reconciled to God, but that, the, that, the, that Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the believing spouse touches all of that home. And it doesn't mean that the, the children are believers. Here he's not calling them holy in that sense, but that they have been set apart as the children of a believer in this covenant home. And so grace is thick in that household. Paul speaks about the believing spouse's role as in a gospel opportunity, an evangelistic opportunity. Peter writes about it more when he writes to wives uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, who may have an unbelieving husband, about how they can be, be one to Christ without a word. And so in a home like this, if that's your situation, if you are a believer married to an unbelieving spouse, a gospel witness for you is probably going to be more caught than taught. It's probably going to be more living out Christ than it will be words, though um, words will be necessary. And so God's call in that situation is perseverance. Trust Him. At the same time, notice how realistic, again, this text is regarding sin and fallenness. Regarding the fact that that dark and light cannot ultimately commingle. That there, there may be great pressure on both spouses in a situation like that. Look at verse 16. Well, how do you know? How do you know, wife, believing wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, believing husband, whether you will save your wife? Which leads to our fourth point this morning, that peace without marriage or outside of marriage is also for our good. Look back at verse 15. Yes, if, if, believe, if the unbelieving spouse will consent to live with the believing spouse, great. There's, there's much opportunity for the gospel there. But, verse 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or the sister, the believer, is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And so the call on the believing spouse is to peace. Let your unbelieving spouse go. Notice the unbeliever is taking the initiative here. The unbeliever gets to a point where he or she cannot stay and believes they cannot stay in this relationship, in this marriage. And in such cases, God's Word says, you are free to let them go. You are not bound, Paul says. Your goal, believing spouse, is for peace even if peace is going to be achieved outside of the context of marriage. Think about the gospel is a gospel of peace. And this is one of the two exceptions that God's Word talks about in terms of uh, God's commands regarding divorce and when divorce is biblically acceptable. Sometimes this exception is called abandonment, when the unbelieving spouse will not stay in the marriage and abandons the marriage. The other, which this text doesn't cover, but is in 
that Matthew 19 text that I mentioned where Jesus is talking about marriage and divorce. Uh, Jesus puts it this way. Um, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for, here's the exception, except for the Greek word is porneia. You understand the word, words like pornography and pornographic come from that word. Except for sexual immorality, except for porneia, that's the one exception, and marries another, commits adultery. Notice that that's not a command to divorce, but it's a recognition that because of, of sexual unfaithfulness of a spouse, the marriage covenant has been violated, and divorce is an option. And I think in both cases that God's Word indicates that remarriage is a possibility. Now, all of that is beyond the scope of this uh, particular message to address in great detail. And it's quite possible that what I've just said has caused more questions than, than answered in your mind, particularly if, if these things apply to you personally. And if they do, and if you're uncertain about your status and how these things apply, I would encourage you to speak uh, with one of your elders and to, to come together uh, with God's Word open and work through this uh, together and understand how these truths apply to you. In regard to our text this morning, it's hard to know that verse 16, whether to take that statement positively or negatively, like, how do you know if you're going to save them? Or, yeah, you might save them, but that is they, them being saved, them coming to faith through your witness. But I think that the believing spouse should hear those words uh, with great encouragement. In other words, if you're the unbelieving spouse in that relationship and the believing spouse wants to leave, you don't have to bear the weight. You don't have to bear the pressure of your spouse's salvation. Trust in God's sovereignty in salvation. Trust ultimately in His care and His protection for you and your whole family. And so the call here in, in the last section is for the believing, to the believing spouse is peace. Even if peace is going to be achieved outside of the marriage context, your conscience can be clear. And I think that's also a call to the church body to support a brother or a sister who is married to an unbeliever and to support the, the, the children and the family as they seek to be faithful. Uh, to have them into your home, to, to love those children, to show them a picture of a believing husband and wife. And there should, again, be great, great optimism in, in regard to God's grace toward that family. Think of the example of Timothy in Scripture. Timothy, we know, came from a home where his mother was a strong believer, his grandmother, uh, but his dad was not. And God used their ministry to their son. Uh, he came to faith through Paul's ministry to him, through Paul's sharing of the gospel, and became one of the heroes of the faith. There's, there's great grace for homes that have just one believing husband or wife. And so these are God's instructions to us about the goodness of marriage in the midst of its challenges and difficulties. That marriage is good for our protection and for its permanence and for our perseverance. And that we can have peace even if that means outside of the marriage context. 
and to view marriage in this way and to live out marriage in this way, even when marriage is difficult, friends, is to swim against the current of the world around us. See, in our world, marriage exists, or at least it's thought to exist, to meet my needs. Marriage exists for my self-fulfillment, to make me happy. My spouse is there to complete me. And if that role is played by one spouse in my 20s and another in my 40s, so be it. If it's defined by a spouse of the same gender, so be it. In our world, marriage is a 50-50 proposition. If I don't think my spouse is giving their fair share, then I have every right, in fact, I have an obligation to, to dial back on what I give toward the marriage. But in God's kingdom, in which we, his people, are the preview of his coming kingdom and the presence of his coming kingdom even now, in God's kingdom, marriage exists for a much more glorious reason. It exists to magnify the greatness of God by showing us a picture of the gospel. Showing us a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says to each of us, you are so broken and so messy and so sinful that the only way that you could be redeemed was by the shedding of Jesus' precious, pure blood. It cost him his life to purchase your forgiveness and your freedom. And the gospel says equally that you are so fully loved by him that Jesus gladly laid down his life for you. It brought the Savior great joy when he pictured the future glory you what it would look like for you to be a new creation through faith in the work of the Holy Spirit. The glory that that, that would bring His Father. That's what the gospel says. Listen to, how, listen to how Tim and Kathy Keller describe marriage as a living illustration of that reality in their book, The Meaning of Marriage. What then is marriage for, they say? It is for helping each other become our future glory selves, the new creations that God will eventually make us. When two Christians who fully understand this stand before the minister all decked out in their wedding finery, they realize that they're not just playing dress up. What they're saying is that someday they're going to stand not before the minister, but before the Lord. And they will turn to see each other without spot or blemish. And they hope to hear God say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Over the years, you have lifted one another up with prayer and thanksgiving. You have confronted one another. You have rebuked each other. You have hugged and loved each other and continually pushed each other toward me. And now look at you. You are radiant. 
Loved ones, when we embrace that vision for our marriage, God's vision for, for all of our marriages, we will seek to protect our spouse from sin and temptation. We will commit ourselves to the permanence of our covenant vows that we've made with one another. We will persevere with our spouse even when times are hard. And we will even be at peace if in God's wisdom, wisdom, marriage is no longer our status. The only way we can do that is by continually embracing what Jesus has done for us. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for its clarity this morning. Lord, we thank you that you speak a clear word for our marriages, for all of our marriages. Lord, I pray for those in particular who are experiencing great difficulty and challenge in their marriage today. Holy Spirit, I pray that they would see a vision of Christ and Him crucified, the one who laid down His life to make us all His bride, and that we would all be willing to lay down our lives for our spouses. God, I pray for divorced persons who know the pain and the, the shame of that, God, I pray that you would heal those wounds. I pray pray that you would remind us all that that all who trust in you, all, every, every sin has been paid for fully. And that you heal us and you make us new. Lord, I pray for the husband or wife who is married to an unbeliever today. God, thank you that there is grace in that home because of their presence. And I pray you would sustain them. And I pray their spouse would be one without a word, just in observing the holiness of their husband or wife. Lord, I pray for those who are widowed, who have lost a spouse and deeply miss them. Would you be near? Would you be their spouse? Would you show them how deeply loved they are, that their identity is firmly fixed as one of your children? Lord Jesus, we pray that as we sing now this song, that you would remind us that you are are the great reality in our lives. You are our joy. You are our righteousness. Thank you for revealing yourself so that we might know you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.